I enjoyed having dinner with you, he said, with eyes that bored into hers. They were like deep blue glowing coals. I hope to see you again sometime. He sounded as though he meant it, and she smiled. Of all the people she had met that night, he was the only one who had impressed her by quite a lot. There was something very rare and remarkable about him, and she knew by the end of the evening that she had met an extraordinary man. Good luck in California, she said softly, wondering if their paths would ever cross again. She was not at all sure he would call. He didn't seem like the type. He had his own world, his own passion, considerable success in his field, and it was unlikely that he would pursue a seventeen-year-old girl. In fact, she was almost certain just from talking to him that he would not. Thank you, Kate, he answered. I hope you get into Radcliffe. I'm sure you will. They'll be lucky to have you whether your father went to Harvard or not. He shook her hand then, and this time it was Kate who lowered her eyes under the intensity of his gaze. It was as though he were examining her in every detail to carve her into his memory. It was an odd feeling, but as he did it, she felt irresistibly drawn to him by a force that was impossible to resist. Thank you she whispered. And then with a small, awkward bow in her direction, he turned and disappeared into the crowd to look for Charles. He's a remarkable man, Clark said admiringly, as they slowly made their way out and retrieved their coats at the door. Do the two of you know who he is? He then proceeded to fill Kate and her mother in on his exceptional feats and the records he had broken in the past few years. Clark seemed to know them all. As they got in the car, Kate stared out the window, thinking of the time she had spent talking to him. The records he had broken had meant nothing to her, although she admired him for it, and realized that he was important and accomplished in the rarefied atmosphere in which he lived. But it was the very essence of him that drew her to him, his power, his strength, his gentleness. Even his awkwardness had touched her in a way no one else ever had— she knew at that very moment, without question, that he had taken some part of her with him, and what was troubling her as she looked out the window was that she had no idea if she'd ever see him again. 2. After the glittering debutante ball at Christmas, as Kate had suspected, she didn't hear from Joe Albright. Despite the card her father had given him, he didn't call. She read about him and made a point of looking for news of him, and she saw his name in the newspapers and even newsreels of him when he won races from time to time. He had broken several records in California and had won a claim for the latest plane he'd designed with the help of Dutch Kindleberger and John Leland Atwood. She knew now that Joe's flying was legendary, but he was off in his own world, far from hers, and had undoubtedly forgotten her. He seemed entirely part of another life, light years from hers, and she was certain now that she would never see him again. For the rest of her life, she would read about him and remember the hours she'd spent talking to him one night when she was a young girl. In April, she was accepted at Radcliffe, and her parents were ecstatic, as was she. The war was not going well in Europe, and they talked about it constantly. 
Her father still insisted that Roosevelt would not allow the United States to get involved. But nonetheless, accounts of what was happening were disturbing, and two of the young men she knew had gone to England and joined the RAF. The Axis had begun a counteroffensive in North Africa, and General Rommel was relentlessly winning battles with the Africa Corps. In Europe, Germany had invaded Yugoslavia and Greece, and Italy had declared war on Yugoslavia. And in London, there were as many as 2,000 people being killed per day in Luftwaffe raids. As a result of the war, they could no longer go to Europe in the summer, so for the second year they spent their entire summer on Cape Cod instead. They had a house there, and Kate had always enjoyed it. She was particularly excited this summer, as she was going to college in the fall, and her mother was grateful that she wouldn't be going far away. Cambridge was just across the river, and Kate and her mother got everything ready before they left for the Cape, where they were planning to stay until Labor Day. And Clark was going to come up on the weekends, as he always did. It was a summer of tennis and parties, and long walks on the beach with friends. Kate swam in the ocean every day, and met a very nice boy who was going to Dartmouth in the fall, and another who was going into his junior year at Yale. They were all healthy young people, with bright minds and good values, and a large group of them played everything from golf to croquet to badminton on the beach, and more often than not the boys played touch football while the girls watched. It was a long, easy summer, and the only dark shadows were provided by the news from Europe, which was more worrisome every day. The Germans had taken Crete, and there was heavy fighting in North Africa and the Middle East. The British and Italians were fighting air battles over Malta. And in late June, the Germans had invaded Russia and taken them completely by surprise. And a month later, Japan had penetrated into Indochina. It was a summer of fierce battles and bad news from all over the world. When Kate wasn't thinking about the war, she was thinking about going to Radcliffe. It was only days away, and she was even more excited than she let on. A lot of her friends from high school had opted not to go to college. She was more the exception than the norm. Two of her friends had gotten married after graduation, and three more had announced their engagement that summer. At eighteen, she already felt like an old maid. In a year, most of them would have babies, and even more of her friends would be married. But she agreed with her father. She wanted to go to college, although she hadn't decided what to major in yet. If the world had been different, she would have liked to study law, but it was too great a sacrifice to make. She knew that if she chose a law career, it was unlikely that she would ever be able to marry. It was a choice one had to make, and law as a career was not a woman's world. She was going to study something like literature or history with a minor in Italian or French. If nothing else, she could always teach one day. But other than law, there were no careers that particularly fascinated her, and both her parents assumed that she would get married when she finished school. College would just be something interesting for her to do while she waited for the right man. Joe's name came up after she met him, once or twice in the ensuing months, not as a prospect for her, but for something new or important he'd achieved. Her father took even greater interest in him, now that he'd met him, and reminded Kate of him more than once. 
But she needed no prompting. She had never forgotten him, nor heard from him either. He was just a very interesting person she'd met, and eventually her fascination with him began to pale. Her other pursuits, like college and her friends, were far more real. It was the last weekend of the summer, the Labor Day weekend, when she and her parents went to a party they attended every year, usually after they returned from their summer trip. It was a barbecue given by their neighbors in Cape Cod. Everyone in the area went. There were children and old people and families, and their hosts built an enormous bonfire on the beach. She was standing in a group of her cohorts, toasting marshmallows and hot dogs, when she took a step back from the flames and backed into someone she hadn't seen. She turned to apologize for stepping on their feet, although she knew it couldn't have hurt much. She was wearing shorts and bare feet, and as she looked up at her victim, she saw in amazement that it was Joe Albright. And as soon as she saw him, she just stared at him and couldn't speak as she clutched her stick of flaming marshmallows, and he grinned. You'd better watch that before you set someone on fire. What are you doing here? Waiting for a marshmallow, he said. Yours look a little overcooked. They were turning to ash on the stick as she stared at him, unable to believe he was standing there. He looked happy to see her, and in khaki pants and a sweater, he looked like a kid, and his feet were bare too. When did you come back from California? She asked, feeling an instant rapport with him again. It was as though they were old friends, and both of them seemed suddenly oblivious to the people they were with. She had been in a group of young people, and he had driven up to the Cape with an old friend. I didn't come back from California. He smiled at her, obviously pleased that they'd met. I'm still out there. I guess I will be for the rest of the year. I'm just here for a few days. I was going to call your father on Tuesday and make good on my offer. Are you in school? I start next week. She could hardly keep her mind on his words. He looked tanned and handsome. His hair had gotten blonder, and she could see how powerful his shoulders were in his sweater instead of the borrowed tails. He was even better looking than she remembered, and she felt suddenly tongue-tied with him, which was most unlike her. And to her, he still looked like a giant earthbound bird, with his long arms and his slightly nervous shuffling. But he seemed far more comfortable now with her. He had thought of her often, and this was a far easier setting for him. As he chatted with her, she was still holding her burned stick with the marshmallows, which were not only burned now, but cold. With a gentle gesture, he took the stick from her and tossed it into the fire. Have you eaten yet? he asked, taking control of the situation. Just marshmallows, she said with a shy smile as he stood near her, and his hand